one else, Isaiah chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're working our way verse by verse through the book of Isaiah. And we're, um, we're, uh, we've got a long ways to go, but we're having a good time as we do it. And um, I had one church member say to me, he said, Pastor, before this Bible study, Isaiah was one of my least favorite books of the Bible, just because I had a hard time understanding it. And I had to kind of agree with him that I, have, I had a hard time understanding it as well. And I just want to make sure I put this out here, uh, that I'm thankful for commentaries, and uh, I'm thankful for men who are able to um, discern and understand and that I'm able to go to some resources. And if I say anything intelligent up here, I probably got it from somewhere else. So uh, just always keep that in mind. But we want, to, um, we want to rightly divide the word of truth. That's the goal. The goal is that we rightly divide it and we understand it. We understand the book of Isaiah was written for the nation of Israel. It was not written for us. But there are things in here that we can apply to our lives. And I think we'll see that tonight. That the same old sin that creeps into our lives today has been around and, and will continue to be around. Um, the, this book was written some 2,800 years ago. Here we are today and we're still dealing with the same old problems that they were dealing with 2,800 years ago. And so we'll get to see some of that tonight. A very practical uh, concept we'll look at uh, as we explain some verses. Isaiah chapter number 9, if you'd back up one chapter Isaiah 9, and we'll be verse 8 down through verse number 12. Let's have you stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter number 9, and we'll begin in 8, read through 12, and then the Bible study tonight is meant to take us all the way through chapter 10. I don't think we'll get all the way through tonight, but we'll see how far we get, how far we go. Verse 8 of Isaiah 9, the Bible says, The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel, meaning it is for Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You have here the ten northern tribes of Israel. Uh, they are under the punishing hand of God, and they say, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, we, we can endure the punishment of God. And we'll still be fine. We'll, we'll just rebuild. He, he can send devastation our way, but we'll overcome it. And lo and behold, that wasn't the case. And so the title of the Bible study tonight, we'll see three different groups of people between chapters 9 and 10, and we'll see the different uh, attitudes that they had. And so the Bible study uh, title sort of lays out those attitudes. And the title is this, The Proud Punished and the Humble Honored. The Proud Punished and the humble honored. If you've gone to church any length of time, you know that God resists pride and he honors those that are humbled. And we'll see pride tear down Israel and in some instances tear down Judah and tear down Assyria. But a remnant will be restored out of Judah because they turn to the Lord in humility and they learn to trust him. Sometimes God sends punishment our way. And we can either bow up in pride and rebel against God in that punishment, 
Or we can turn to the Lord and humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm going to do it your way. And he honors that. Amen? Well, let's pray. We'll get into the Bible study tonight. Lord, help us as we go through and study these verses. Lord, make sense of what's being said and who it's being said to. And uh, Lord, uh, we'll understand it in historical context. Uh, Lord, and then the, uh, the context within the Scripture. And, but Lord, we'll also draw out some applications that, Lord, I believe will please you and help us to have the right heart attitude. Lord, pride bows up and gets in the way every single day for most of us. And Lord, it, it causes us problems. And Lord, it's humility that you're after. And so, Lord, help us to find that, to lay our pride to the side tonight. And Lord, to see the importance of having a humble heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, which we looked at extensively last Wednesday evening, we saw uh, what I believe to be the two comings of Christ laid out there. And we said that from verses 1 down through uh, verse number 2, you have the first coming of Christ. And then uh, 3 down through 7, you have the second coming of Christ. Look, down, look back at, with me at uh, verse number 6. So those of you watching at home, these won't be on your screen there. I encourage you to get your Bible out. Follow along there. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord will perform this. One day Jesus Christ is going to be birthed, if you will, to the nation of Israel anew. He already came once. He was born uh, in lowly Bethlehem, laid in a lowly stall and worshipped by lowly angels. And his first coming was quite humble. His, quite, his first coming was, uh, uh, was unannounced to those that mattered uh, within Israel's uh, power system and political system. But Jesus will be birthed anew to the nation of Israel. And this time he'll come back not, on, uh, not, not to peasant parents laid in a stable. He'll come back uh, on a throne with King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh. He'll come back with eyes that, uh, that, are, uh, that shoot out swords. He'll come back as a king to settle the score with the wicked of this world. He'll come back and he'll uh, take the leaders of this world that Matthew 25 lays out for us and he'll take them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat as laid out in the minor prophets and he'll judge them. Those that were good unto the least of these, his brethren, the Jews, will be allowed to enter into the millennial reign. Those who were not good but aided the Antichrist will be turned into hell along with the Antichrist. And then Jesus Christ will set up a government here on earth. He'll rule from Jerusalem that will last for a thousand years. We looked at that in great depth last week. We've looked through Genesis and uh, 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 through the various verses in some of the Gospels where Jesus spoke. We went to Revelation and saw that event where Jesus will uh, lay hold of the power of this earth and personally take charge, expelling Satan from being the prince and power of the air. But then we get to verse 8 where we're at tonight, and there seems to be a shift in Isaiah's words. He goes from talking about the first coming and the second coming of Christ to where now he's talking about current 
modern day Israel. And I believe that's the case, and he's going to address Israel. He's going to address um, Assyria, and he's going to address Judah. Now, for those of you that have not been either paying attention during the Bible study, or to those of you who have been paying attention but uh, haven't been here in a while, or to those who just haven't been here, let me quickly lay this out for you, okay? Uh, You had King Saul, and then you had King David, and then you had King Solomon. Everybody with me so far? Everybody know those three kings? Okay, they were Israel's first three kings. There was a little gap between Saul and David where one of Saul's sons reigned. But set that aside. Those were the first three kings in Israel. And then Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a hotshot kid who didn't think he needed to listen to the older council. And he listened to the younger council and he wanted to raise taxes on the people. And when he raised taxes, there was a revolt. And the ten northern states or tribes of Israel split away from the two southern tribes of Israel. So then you had Israel become two countries. To the north, you had the ten tribes. And to the south, you had the two tribes. The ten tribes to the north maintained the name Israel. The two tribes to the south uh, became known as the nation of Judah. Everybody with me so far? Raise your hand if you're awake and you understand. Okay, some of you are not awake. Amen. So uh, you have the ten to the north, the two to the south. And when we get to Isaiah's time, um, Isaiah is prophesying right before Israel, the ten northern tribes are taken captive, and then even through that time. And then after uh, Isaiah passes away, Judah eventually will be carried into captivity. By the way, part of what makes the book of Isaiah so fascinating is that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are written leading up to the captivity, and then the last 27 are written almost as though the captivity was over, but Isaiah was dead well before the captivity ever took place. How did that happen? Because Isaiah did not write the book of Isaiah. God wrote the book of Isaiah through his hand. God is the author of the Bible. In fact, liberal theologians for years believed that there were multiple men named Isaiah that penned the book, and then in the uncovering of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were able to to prove that no one man named Isaiah that lived well before the fall of of Judah wrote the entire book, which just left everyone uh, amazed. And and, and those who were uh, literal scriptural literalists said, see, I told you so. But uh, that's neither here nor there uh, for tonight. We'll get into that when we get deeper into the book. So here you have, from verse 8, all the way to the end of verse number 10, you have uh, three uh, different groups that, that God is going to ad- address. And I do believe when you get to the end of chapter 10, you come to what I'll call a double meaning, a double prophecy. There is a prophecy that is to Judah about that current time, and that prophecy also perfectly lays over the coming back of Christ and the great tribulation leading in to the millennium. We'll look at that maybe a little bit later tonight, if not next week. Okay, let's jump in tonight with verse number 8, and let's look at, number 1, Israel's arrogance. Israel's arrogance. If you received a prayer bulletin tonight, on the back of there is a fill-in-the-blank outline. I encourage you to take notes as we go. And so look with me at letter A. We see their country ruined. Their country ruined. Ruined, And so Israel never did have a righteous king. The ten northern tribes, every single king did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Rehoboam would, uh, the kingdom would split under Rehoboam and another man named Jeroboam uh, would take over. And from Jeroboam all the way to the final king 
I believe his name is Jehoiakim, don't quote me on that, but all the way to the final king of the nation of Israel, every single one of them would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And eventually, God just said, enough is enough. And so here Isaiah is prophesying about the ruin of their country. Look back with me at verse number 8. We see here their arrogance that leads to their ruin. The Bible says, the Lord has sent a word into Jacob. And it hath lighted upon Israel. So Isaiah is residing in Judah. and But the prophecy is given in Judah to the ten northern tribes of Israel. Look at verse 9. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Those are two tribes of Israel uh, that say in the pride. Notice that, that phrase. Pride and stoutness of heart. The bricks are falling down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. What are they saying? God has rained destruction on us, but we don't care. We'll overcome. We'll just replace the hewn stones with our own bricks. We don't need that. We don't need God's hand of protection. We can protect ourselves. You see the arrogance here? You see, that we can live however we want. God can punish us, and we'll overcome the punishment, and we will prevail. We will prevail. Look, uh, look at verse number 11. Therefore the Lord shall set up in the adversaries of reason. Reason is the king of Syria. Against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. And they shall devour Israel with open mouth, for all this... His, God's anger, is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Look at that phrase there in verse number 12. For all this, His anger is not stretched away. His hand is stretched out still. And I've asked you about paragraph markers in your Bible. You will find that phrase to be at the end of the next of, of, the, of those four paragraphs. The last three paragraphs of chapter number 9 and the first paragraph of chapter number 10. What does that mean? That means, again, look at the phrase there, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What, would, what was the pattern? The pattern was that they would do wrong, and then God would punish them to a point, and they would start to show a little bit of remorse, and then God would show grace. He'd come in with the grace. Just like a parent who comes down really hard on their child... And then what happens? The child begins to show a little bit of of remorse, and then the parent comes and opens the floodgates, and mercy comes pouring in all over that child. Well, now here God is saying, that pattern's gone. I'm I'm opening up the floodgates of pain and suffering and punishment, and and that's the only gate that's coming open. No matter what you do or say, no matter how remorseful you are, you've reached the point of no return. We see... Their country's ruined. Turn over to Psalm chapter number 10. Hold your place in Psalm 10 because we'll be back to it in a few minutes. Psalm chapter 10 and look with me at uh, verse number 4. We see here about pride, about how it brings ruin. Um, it, It says there, it says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. What do we draw out of this about proud people? Even when someone who's proud is punished, if they're truly proud, they're not even going to repent because their pride won't let them do it. Now, um, can we just all kind of take down the wall, the pious wall that we put around us, and just be honest for a few minutes tonight? We all struggle with pride. 
Raise your hand if you don't have a pride problem. <laughs> that was a trick question. I got you. We all do, right? And uh, it ends up, we end up uncovering it in ways we didn't even know it was there, right? I've used the illustration before, but if I had a casket right here with a dead body in it, and I walked up and I insulted the person in the casket, how upset are they going to be? Now, you might be upset for them, but how upset are they going to be? You can't offend a dead person. Right? They're dead. What did Paul say? He said, I die daily. Amen? Is it possible for someone to walk up to you tonight and say something that would hurt your feelings? You know what that means? You have a pride problem. And I have a pride problem. You know what marital strife is? It's pride. On one or both of your parts. Amen? Pride brings contention. And you know what? If you have a really great amount of pride in you, I can sit up here and preach on pride all day. You can attend Miss Marcia's class. Poor Miss Marcia, I'm stealing all her thunder before she teaches. She's been telling me what she's going to teach, and now I'm up here telling you what she told me. Amen? She wrote, no, she didn't write my Bible study. Um, but, um, you know, you, you can, uh, someone can stand up here and preach on pride. You can attend Miss Marcia's class and hear about pride. If you really are a proud person, what, what will happen is that preaching of God's word and the pain that comes from your pride will just shove you deeper into more pride. That's what happened here. God's punishing them in their pride. He's destroying their country, but instead of humbling down, nope, we're good, we'll just rebuild. We'll figure it out. Their country ruined. Then we move on to the next stage that arrogance brings. Letter B, we see their leaders removed. Their leaders removed. Uh, go with me to... Um, go with me back to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at the next paragraph there, 13 through 17. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them. Neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. They're being punished for their pride, but because they're proud, they won't turn to the Lord. They're stubborn. 14. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. He's gonna, in one day, he's going to cut off their head and he's going to cut off their tail. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? What is that symbolic of? Well, the Bible tells us. Look at 16. For the leaders of his people caused them to err, and they are led of them, uh, and, excuse me, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this, here's that phrase again, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. What is the head? Back up to 15. The ancient, I, I skipped 15 a moment ago. The ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. Their leaders are removed. The political leaders removed in one day. There's going to be an army that's going to come through and just slaughter or take away into captivity all the political leaders. And then that's the head. And what's the tail? Well, the tail is the spiritual leaders. All of the false prophets that Israel had 
they're going to be removed as well. And the people of that country are going to be left without any political government whatsoever or any spiritual leaders whatsoever. They're all going to be taken away. We see their leaders removed. Did this take place? Absolutely. Turn over to First Chronicles chapter number 5 and look with me at verse number 26. Chronicles is in the Old Testament. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 5 and verse number 26. I'll give you a moment to get there. Some people say I move too fast with the scriptures. So give a moment. I'll, I'll, I'll take a breath for a moment. Amen. Are everybody there? I still hear some pages turning. Somebody's doing that just just because. All right. Look at twenty six. And the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, and the spirit of Tilgath Pilsner, king of Assyria, and he carried them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites. And the half tribe of Manasseh, and brought them uh, unto Hala and Habor and Hera, and to the river Gozen unto this day. Well, they were all carried away. The army of Assyria swept in, and their leaders were removed because they did not think destruction was coming. Here's the thing about a scorner. In the, the book of Proverbs, you have five different characters. You have the wise man. You have the prudent man, you have the simple man, you have the fool, and you have the scorner. The scorner and fool are on the same team, and the prudent and the wise man are on the same team. And in the middle, they're at war over the simple man. Well, what, is the, what are the attributes of a scorner? Can I tell you, the number one attributes of a scorner are this. They think they can do whatever they want and avoid the consequences. I will live however I want, and I'm not going to get punished. I know that people who smoke get lung cancer, but not me. I know that people that abuse alcohol get uh, cirrhosis of the liver, but not me. I know that people that run around and uh, commit um, theft from stores and shoplift, I know that they end up in jail, but not me. I'll get away with it. I know that people who run around with gangs uh, end up in jail or end up dead, but not me. I know that people who cheat uh, their way through life eventually get caught, but not me. I know uh, men who cheat on their wives, eventually that comes to light, but not me. I know that wives who cheat on their husbands, uh, uh, eventually that comes to the light and there's a lot of heartache and hurt, but I'll be the exception to the rule. And that is a scorner. And this is caused by pride that blinds me and you. Pride brings blindness to consequences. We're so short-sighted in our pride, we think somehow we'll get, we're going to be able to escape. And we'll be the exception to the rule. And one day, Israel woke up in their pride and in their prosperity and thought, well, no one could ever take us over. We are the greatest country on earth. And in came the Assyrian army. Their country was ruined. Their leaders removed, letter C, notice, their senseless rage. Their senseless rage. Look at verse 18. Through 21, for wickedness burneth as the fire, it shall destroy the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No, look here, no man shall spare his brother. 
the senseless rage. Brother going to war against brother. No man shall spare his brother. Verse 20. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. And he shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Look here. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. And they together shall be against Judah. Here's that phrase again. For all this, his, God's anger, is not turned away, but the hand is stretched out still. What would happen is at the end, when things got really ugly, because of their pride, not only would they be attacking other countries, they would be attacking themselves. Now, I don't want to Americanize the Bible real hard, because this passage is not written to America. It's written to Israel. But could I just, could I, could I just take a moment and talk about maybe a parallel between Israel and its end and America and its possible end? One way to know if a country is getting toward the end of its, of its reign, of its dominance, is when its people are at each other's throat and bloodthirsty. Boy, political tensions got so heated in the last presidential election, I was wondering if we weren't going to end up in a civil war. How many agree with what I'm saying right there? It was ugly. It was ugly. One way to tell when a country is reaching its end is when they're attacking each other. And look here. Look back at verse 21. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh. Do you know who Manasseh and Ephraim were? They were the sons of Joseph. These two were as close as close could be. Now, we don't have any record of Manasseh and Ephraim actually going to war with each other, but no doubt the tension within the country was so intense that Manasseh was at Ephraim, and Ephraim was at Manasseh. Look back at the verse there, and they together shall be against Judah. The only thing that the people of Israel hated more than each other was the nation of Judah. The only thing that would unite them was anger and hatred toward the common enemy of Judah. We see their senseless rage. Letter D, we see their judges rebuked. Their judges rebuked. Look at chapter 10 with me and look at verse number 1. It says, woe, and that word woe is one of the strongest words in the entire Old Testament in the Hebrew. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment. Who makes decrees and uh, who uh, casts judgments other than the judges of a land, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey. And that they may rob the fatherless. The court system is slanted against the poor and against the widows and against the fatherless. Verse 3. And look, look at these three questions offered here by the prophet to the judges of, of Israel. And what will ye do in the day of visitation or the day of punishment? And in the desolation which shall come from far, to whom will ye flee for help? To where will ye leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The fourth and final time that phrase is given to us. What's going on here? The judges of the land are so corrupt that they're taking advantage of the poor and the fatherless and the widows. 
they're stepping on them and they're hurting them. And look at the three questions God offers these judges in verse 3. In essence, what he's saying is in the day of uh, punishment, while under the punishing hand of God, what will you do? While you're under the punishing hand of that judge, judges, that judge, what are you going to do? Hey, you have people stand before you in court and you wear the robe and you sit up on your your, your high horse, your stand, and you cast judgments that are corrupt against the poor and the vulnerable society. One day, the judge of all judges is going to call you in and what are you going to do that day? Not only what will you do, to whom will ye flee? To whom will you flee? Um, I think of... Um, a child who's in trouble with mom and dad. Maybe a child who was left in charge of his siblings while mom and dad were gone. I, I can speak to this because I was the oldest of seven, so this situation may or may not have happened to me. Amen? I, uh, I, I was a great babysitter because I would let my brothers and sisters do whatever they wanted the entire time mom and dad were gone. They had two rules. Number one, don't break anything. All right, you can do whatever you want. Don't break anything. Rule number two is that 15 minutes from the time mom and dad said they were going to be home, everyone has to help clean up. Now, that's a great babysitting tactic because you can do nothing the entire time your parents are gone and they walk in the door, the house is clean, and it looks like you're the greatest babysitter on planet Earth. All right? But it didn't always work out that way. All right? And uh, here I am in charge of my brothers and sisters and my parents come home and either something's broken or... Uh, something didn't get done, they asked to get done, and you know what, I was the judge while they were gone, but now I'm sitting in my bedroom about to get punished by them. Now imagine the judges who've been put in control of Israel by God, who are taking advantage of the people, and now God's calling them on the carpet, and Isaiah is saying to them, in that day of punishment, when God visits you, that day of punishment, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? How many of you uh, got spanked growing up? Raise your hand if you got spanked growing up. That explains a lot about the rest of you. Amen? Just teasing. You know what it means? You know what it feels like? You remember what it felt like to sit in the room and wait on mom and dad to come in? You know? We, our house was up on stilts. And uh, my dad was uh, even bigger than I am uh, at one point, And I could hear him coming down the hall from a long ways away. Boom, boom, the whole house would shake, you know. And when you're in trouble, it's exaggerated, right? It's, it shakes. The whole house feels like it's about to fall over. And, you know, the, we, my dad would keep the paddle on a cubby hole. There was a cubby hole with, like, wood trim around it, and he would sit up on that wood trim up against a wooden wall. And he'd take that paddle off the wall, and, I mean, I could hear it. And uh, when I was a little kid, I would start to cry, Mommy. Mommy! And then I got older and I thought, why am I crying mommy? She's the one that sent me to my room. She put me in this position. One day God is going to spank or punish those who are corrupt in their judgments. What are they going to do? Where are they going to run? They're, they're, when you are in that spot, there is nowhere to run. Notice that last question in verse 3. And where will ye leave your glory? Where will you leave your glory? You know what he's saying? What are you going to do with your pride and arrogance then? Hey, you were so arrogant that when God punished you, 
you just kind of shrugged your shoulders and said, whatever, we'll rebuild. And then God sent in the nation of Assyria and cut off the head and tail, took away the political leaders and the, and the spiritual leaders of the country. And they kind of, ah, whatever. Anarchy took over and they began to attack each other. Now there's no political system in place. And so now you have anarchy, right? That's what happens. And you have, they're, they're, they're fighting each other in the streets. And lastly, God comes down and judges the judges and says, what about your pride now? What about your pride now? Look back at Psalm chapter 10 and look at verse number 2. I told you to hold your place in Psalm and then I didn't do it myself. Psalm chapter 10. You want to know what's humiliating? If you ever want to know what's humiliating, go up to junior church on a Sunday morning and participate in a Bible drill where you've got to find the verse real fast and watch how much faster the kids are than me and you. They're lightning fast. I mean, they're lightning fast, right? They could say, you know, Jonah 3-2, and a kid's got it in like three seconds. And I'm, I'm still trying to find, you know, um, is Jonah in the Old Testament or New Testament? <laughs> All right, Psalm chapter 10 and verse number 2. Look there with me. Again, this whole chapter uh, deals with pride. Look here. The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. One way to tell that a country is lifted up in pride is that it uses its political systems to oppress the poor. Again, not to chase this rabbit too far off the trail, but I feel that much of our American system has gone from being compassionate to the poor to enslaving the poor. We, we give them just enough to string them along and there's no incentive for them to actually get their life back on track. And uh, there's a, a political party that will, probably they both do it on some level, but there's one political party, major political party in this country, that will incentivize increasing welfare and increasing benefits in order to get votes. And what are we doing? We're keeping people down with our judgments, with our political systems, and that is wicked and that is wrong. We see their judges rebuked. So number one, we see Israel's arrogance, those ten northern tribes. Number two, let's notice Assyria's ambition. Assyria's ambition. So um, I'm going to bring you to a question that I have often had and got answered this week in my Bible studies. Here's the question. Why would God command Assyria to punish His people and then destroy Assyria for punishing God's people. Some of you never thought about that before. But how many think that's a good question? Why would God do that? Why would God have Assyria punish His people and then punish them for doing what He ordered them to do? Well, God answers that question for us in chapter 10 in verses 5 uh, down through verse number 19. Let's look at it here. Letter A, notice God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose. Look at verse number 5 of chapter 10. The Bible says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him, I will send Assyria against an hypocritical nation, speaking of Israel, and against the people of my wrath, again speaking of Israel, will I give him, Assyria, a charge to take the spoil 
and to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. What was God's ultimate purpose for Assyria? It was to go in and execute the anger and wrath and indignation of God against his people. God's will for the nation of Assyria was to encapture and enslave Israel. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 22 with me and verse number 28. Proverbs just three three or four books back to the left there. Proverbs chapter 22 quickly here. And uh, we're going to have to stop before the Bible study is over. That's okay. Proverbs chapter 22 and look with me at verse number 28. I'm sorry, Psalm 22. One more book back. I made that mistake when I was studying for this too. Went to the wrong book. Psalm 22 and look at verse number 28. The Bible says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. Sunday morning I said some things that uh, some folks didn't care for too much. I talked about how that God puts kings and presidents in place. I don't want to dabble too much here because I don't want to restart the pot. Okay, but um, look at 22:28 and think about our own country again. For the kingdom is whose? Does it say the kingdom is Donald Trump's? Does it say the kingdom is the will of the American people? Is that what it says? It says the kingdom is the Lord's. Ah, he got in there through corrupt measures. If God did not want him to be president, he would not be president. The kingdom is the Lord's. Look at the rest of the verse. And he, the Lord, God, is the governor among the nations. Who is the president of the United States of America? God is the president of the United States of America. He ultimately is in charge. He is the governor of all governors, the king of all kings, the president of all presidents. He puts up and he puts down. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 21 and verse number 1. Proverbs 21 and verse number 1. Assyria here is being used as a, uh, as a battering ram to punish God's people. Look at verse 1. The king's heart, Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord... As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. What does this tell us? That when it comes to politics, God is sovereign and reigns supreme. God is a will he wants accomplished on earth, and he puts up leaders and puts down leaders, and he moves within their heart to accomplish various things. So the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. So God put it in the king's heart of Assyria to go in and attack and punish and capture and enslave Israel. Now, if you please don't miss what I'm about to say right here. This is so important. If you would have gone into Assyria at this time and said to the Assyrian army and Tilgath Pilsner, who was the Assyrian military general, and to uh, the king of, of uh, Assyria, and said, Pul was his name, and said to them, Are you all being used by God to punish Israel? They would have laughed at you. They would have said, we don't even believe in the God of Israel. What are you talking about? But were they being used by God to execute indignation and wrath against Israel? Yes, they were. What's the point I'm trying to draw out here? God can use anybody, anytime, to do anything He wants. Because He is God. And He is sovereign. Now, Assyria didn't understand they were being used by God. But God, in His 
in his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his providence was using this wicked nation to punish his people. Letter B, notice their unchecked passion. Their unchecked passion. And so God is using Assyria to punish his people, but Assyria takes it just a little bit too far. God had a specific purpose in place, and Assyria took that purpose beyond what God had intended. And here is why they ended up getting punished by God. Look at verse number 7. How be it? How be it? Notice that word, how be it? He meaneth not so. He, meaning God, meaneth not so. Neither does his heart... Let me make sure I'm reading the right verses here. Yes. Neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart, speaking of the nation of Assyria, it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kalno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria. Look at 11. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? God did not want Assyria to lay a finger on the nation of Judah. But once they had accomplished taking over Israel, Assyria said, well, let's just keep on going and let's take over Judah as well. You see here how their passion, their military, uh, 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 their military zeal was unchecked. God, God said, I'm going to use them to take over Israel. And they said, no, we're not done here. We're going to continue to move on and be expansionist. And we're going to take over Judah as well. And God said, no, 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 it's not time for that yet. Leave them alone, and they pushed through and did it anyway. God did not destroy Assyria because they, uh, because they took Israel into captivity. God destroyed Assyria because they moved on past in their pride and touched people that God did not want, want them to touch. Their unchecked passion. Let her see, notice, their king's unseemly pride. Their king's unseemly pride. Look down at chapter 10. And look at verse number 12 with me. It says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, and God's making the case that this country is lifted up in pride. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed His whole work unto Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart, the proud heart, the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Notice the arrogance, the pie in the, or rather the uh, nose in the air attitude. 13, for he saith, so God's going to use the words of the king of Assyria to condemn them. For he saith, by the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. And I have removed the bounds uh, of the people and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. See his pride? 14, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathered the eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Wow! What's this guy saying? He's saying, it's all about me. You know who I think of when I read these verses? I think of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He goes out on his back porch and says, 
Look at the kingdom that I have built. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar right after that? He was in the field like a beast eating grass for seven years. You know who else I think of when I read these verses? I think of Lucifer. Right? I will ascend unto the Most High. Right? We see this king's pride. Why did God destroy Assyria? Was it because they defeated Israel? No. It was because the king was filled with pride and they moved on past what God had commanded them to do. Letter D, quickly, notice their unforeseen punishment. Their unforeseen punishment. Look at chapter 10, verses 16 through 19. We'll finish with this. There, or rather, back up to verse 15. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake its, itself against them that lifteth it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. And under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And he shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fleeth, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be a few that a child may write them. What's he saying here? He's saying, does a, does a saw or, a, or an axe lift itself up against the one who holds it and pretends as though it's something great? Uh, you know, I, I can see two axes left in the woods after a day of chopping trees. And the one axe looks at the other axe and says, I cut down more trees today than you did. Yeah, I'm great. Look at all the trees I cut down. That's silly, right? It's not about the axe. It's about the man who holds the axe. And here this king was being used by God as a battering ram to punish Israel. And he's lifted up in pride saying, look at me, look how great I am. And God says, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute here. I am God. I hold the reins in my hand. I hold the power in my hand. You are simply a tool that I use to accomplish to a purpose. And so here's where we'll finish tonight. Next week, I'm going to show you some uh, New Testament uh, prophecy out of uh, these passages. So come back, and we'll go back to 16 through 19. We'll look at 28 through 34, and I'll show you a parallel prophecy here. That'll be next Wednesday night. But here's where I'll finish with this tonight, on the practical side. We are guilty of doing the same thing that this king of Assyria did. Are we not? Look at what I accomplished at work. Look what I accomplished by raising my kids. Look what I accomplished by having a strong marriage. Look what I accomplished, fill in the blank, whether it's relational or financial or medical, whatever it is, we want to brag on ourselves. God punishes the proud. I was going to take you to James 4. We'll do that next week, James 4, where the Bible says God resisteth the proud. And then down in, later in the chapter it says... He giveth grace unto the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what happens? He will lift you up. He will lift you up. God punishes the proud. Next week, we're going to see that God's going to come down and punish Judah. And unlike Israel, 
there's a segment of Judah that turns back to God and, 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 and learns to trust God. And because they do that, God restores them. And uh, boy, that's who I want to be. I want to be a man who, when I'm lifted up in pride and I'm punished, I don't double down on my pride. I turn from my pride and I find humility. God honors that humility. You know what the Christian life is? It's being lifted up in pride and then being punished and humiliated. And then God lifts us up because we're humble. And then we get up here and we think, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. And God's thinking, I put you up there, bud. Settle down. And then we get all lifted up in pride and bam, back down we go. And it's this back up. I don't want to have to go through that. Amen? I just want to give credit to God for anything good that comes through my life. And that's a great place to live. Let's have our heads bowed. Actually, let's stand to be dismissed tonight. I'm thankful that all of you were here tonight for this Bible study. And I know some of it was uh, weighty and heavy, and the passages are a little more difficult to understand than some of what we're used to in the New Testament. But I hope it was understandable for you. And I hope you'll leave here tonight uh, ready to uh, be humble before the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Ask God to bless us as we go. I pray you have a great rest of your day.